If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be studying verses 31 through 39 this morning. If you're using the Bible provided in front of you, you can just turn to page 944. 944. The reason I want to spend time in Romans 8 this morning is because uh, being a seminary student now, uh, it's great, but one thing that I've noticed about it is um, I'm spending a lot of time studying the Bible. But it's easy in this season of life for the Bible to then become kind of like a textbook to me rather than the living Word of God. And so to be honest with you, there have been times over the last few months where I felt my, my heart, my soul kind of growing cold towards God. Because I, I'm looking at this book, this living word, his words, and I'm seeing it now too much as a textbook and not his word. And so I'm so thankful this semester for Romans chapter 8 because this has been a passage that has rekindled the fire in my heart. It is just, and you'll see as we read it, it is a, a, a chapter, a passage that just rekindles that fire. And I want, as we go in, as we launch into 2018, I hope that it will do the same for you this morning. And so I want to start before we jump in by talking about our affections, okay? This word, affections. Let me talk about that for a second. Because that is very important as we're heading in to 2018, and it's very important as we study this passage to think about our affections. You see, as we go into this new year, I would say that most of us or a lot of us in this room will do what a lot of people around the world are doing. We will make New Year's resolutions, right? New Year's resolutions. We will say, this is what I want to do in 2018. In 2018, I'm going to read more books than I've ever read before. I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to work out this many times a week. I'm going to be nicer to people, whatever it may be for you. We make these New Year's resolutions. But if you're like me, that resolution never makes it a whole year, much less the rest of your life, right? I've never made a resolution and then kept that resolution into February. Will anyone admit that they're like me? I've never made it a whole month. And doing some research... Doing some research, the U.S. News says that 80% of people are just like me. They will not keep their resolution into even February, okay? We all make resolutions, but it doesn't sound like any of us actually keep them. Why is that? Well, I would say one of the big reasons is that because it's not enough to just decide that you're going to change your behavior. It's not enough just to say, I'm going to change this about myself. Your affections need to change first. Your behavior is going to change when you change what you love. Does that make sense? Your behavior is going to change based on what you love. And so if you want to change your behavior, what you have to do first is you have to change your affections. Let me give you an example. So I was here working as a leader in the student ministry for about four or five years and, and loved it. it was, it's an amazing opportunity. Miss it very much. And one of my favorite things about that time working in student ministry here was you would have these, these students, and they would come in as sixth graders. And then slowly you would get to see them mature and become uh, just kind of adults right before your eyes. So I had this group of, of middle schoolers that I started, and they were my, my small group. And I started with them when they were seventh graders, and now they are, they are freshmen in college. And it's so cool to look back at pictures from them as middle schoolers and just see how they have changed. That's awesome. But the crazy thing is, you couldn't really ever, and you know this if you have kids, you don't really see that transformation as it's happening. 
you more see it when you look back at a picture and you notice how much they've changed. But I always notice this one thing, and there's this one transformation that seemed to actually kind of happen overnight. And it happened mostly with the guys, okay? So you'd have this guy, and he'd come in as a sixth grader into the hub, and he would be, we'll, we'll just call him Johnny, okay, just to give him a name. So Johnny comes in, and Johnny comes in, and he is just your typical sixth grade boy. So this is stereotyping, but I think it's actually kind of true. So he's your typical sixth grade boy, and he comes in, and he's wearing, you know, basketball shorts, whether it's cold or not, wearing basketball shorts. He's wearing a t-shirt, and that t-shirt's either going to be Under Armour with some kind of cool saying on it, or it's going to be a superhero t-shirt. That's about the options, okay? He'll usually be wearing socks that go up about to his calves, often neon, right? That's kind of cool now. And then basketball shoes, And that's kind of your stereotypical sixth grade boy a lot of the time that walks into the hub on a Wednesday night. Oh, also, one more thing. His hair is always a mess, right? His hair is always a mess, and he doesn't usually smell very good because he's running everywhere and he's always sweaty, right? So, you know, usually he's probably climbing up the round building behind the hub and he's gotten himself sweaty. So that's kind of typical, right? Sorry if I offended you, if that's not you, but for the most part, that's true. But here's the thing. There's this one day where Johnny will walk into the hub, and he will be totally transformed. All of a sudden, Johnny is wearing a button-up shirt, right, like a polo shirt. He's wearing nice shoes. His hair has a ton of product in it, sticking straight up, right? And you can smell him walking the door because he has taken one of those Axe body spray things and just, you know, like everywhere, right? Now, that is a huge transformation overnight. What caused that? Yeah, everyone knows, right? It wasn't, it wasn't that his parents kept saying, Johnny, dress nicer. Johnny, take a shower. Johnny, smell nicer. That's not what it was. Johnny likes a girl, right? Johnny <laughs> likes a girl. So what's happened? Johnny's affections have changed, and now his behavior has changed also. It's true for him. It's true for this middle school boy. It's true for everyone in this room. If you want life change, If you want to make an actual change, the first thing that has to happen is your affections have to change. It's all about what you love. We as humans, we are lovers, right? We we love things, and our behavior is dependent on what we love. And so my prayer as I've prepared this message is that we would leave here this morning walking into 2018 loving Jesus more more than any time in our entire lives. I could stand up here, I could come up here, and I could say, we're going to do a a topical message of 18 ways to be a better Christian in 2018, and that would make you change for about 18 minutes. But I hope this morning, by studying what I think is the most wonderful chapter of the entire Bible, you will leave here loving Jesus like never before. And you can go back to this throughout 2018 to rekindle your affections for him. So let's read it. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, reading verses 31 through 39. It says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning, I want to give you two main points, two main points based on the argument here that our author, the Apostle Paul, makes. Point one, if you are in Christ, then God is forever on your side. If you are in Christ, then God is forever on your side. And number two, if you are in Christ, then nothing can separate you from his love. If you are in Christ, then nothing can separate you from his love. Let's jump into number one here. If you are in Christ, then God is forever on your side. The Apostle Paul here wrote this letter to the church in Rome, and I think it is one of the best books in the entire Bible, one that you can just stay in as much time as you can because it's so wonderful. But he has now gone on for eight chapters presenting the wonderful, great news of the gospel. And now we are jumping in here at the end of chapter 8, and this is kind of the climax of the story, right? So you need a little background, you need a little backstory before we really explain what's going on here in Romans chapter 8. The first thing you need to know, the first thing you have to be aware of for this to make sense is the fallenness of our world. The fallenness of our world. We live in a world that is fallen. We live in a world where every single part of it has been affected by sin. Nothing in our world works the way it's supposed to. We see that, first of all, in ourselves, right? You see it in your body. Your body doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. Your body, no matter what you do, it breaks down, right? Because of sin, our bodies break down. And we see it outside of ourselves. We see that, that, that government doesn't work the way it's supposed to. We see that families don't work the way they're supposed to. Your friends, nothing's the way that it is supposed to be. Sin has affected every single aspect of our world. And we all know that. Whether you're a Christian or not, you see it. You know that there is something wrong in this world. You know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's the reason we make New Year's resolutions right? Because we all know that there's something wrong with ourselves. We all know that there's something in ourselves that we want to change. And so we say the new year is a good time to do that. We all know that something isn't right. That's the first thing you need to know. Our world is fallen. Our world is broken. Our world is filled with sin. But the second thing you need to know is that there is hope. There is hope. And if you, if you are a Christian, even in the sinful world, the God of the universe is on your side. And, and Paul has taken the first eight chapters of Romans, and he has, he has laid this out. Here's the problem. The problem is sin, but here's the solution. The solution is Jesus. And now, in our passage, he's going to start like this. He's going to ask a question. He's going to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? It is amazing if you are a Christian, to think that the God of the universe is for you. God is holy. He is without sin. He is infinitely beautiful. He is perfect. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. He is omnipotent. He is the creator of the universe, and he is for us. He is for us. And so Paul asks, 
If God is for us, then who can be against us? And the answer is an emphatic, no one. No one can be against us. Now, does that mean that no one will be against us? No, that's not true. Every, people will be against us. People are against Christians. But the point here, here is, who cares who is against you when the God of the universe is on your side? Right? Who cares who is against you? What gave David in the Old Testament, what gave him the confidence to go up against Goliath, the champion, the best warrior there was? What gave him that confidence as a puny little teenager? You know, Goliath might be a champion. Goliath might be a giant. But who cares, right? What's a giant to the God of the universe? What's a giant to the one that hung the stars in the sky? And so David, knowing that God is on his side, has the confidence to go up against this giant. Because who cares if he's a giant? What's a giant compared to God? So who can stand against us if God is on our side? Absolutely, positively, no one, right? No one can stand against us. And as Christians, as Christians, that should give us unbelievable boldness. Unbelievable boldness to know that God is on our side. I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said, Christians should be the boldest people in the world, not cocky and sure of ourselves, but sure of him. We should live a life of boldness, because not, not because we're awesome, right? Not because of anything about us, but because our God is awesome. And the Bible says that he is on our side. That should bring so much unbelievable boldness in our lives. But the great thing is, that's not even the most amazing truth here. It's amazing that God is on our side, but the most amazing truth is that he would even be for us in the first place. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. Because you see, we, we've talked about how sin has corrupted this entire world. We've talked about how sin ha has corrupted this world. How has it even, is even corrupted us? So now we are sinful. Now we are rebels against God. Yet he is on our side. I think the best picture of this, and I always go back to it because I think it just it shows it so well. The best picture of this, in my mind, is in the Old Testament book of Hosea. Right? Maybe you've read that before. If you're not, just an amazing picture of this. In Hosea, we have this man named Hosea, and he's a prophet. He, he, he's a godly man, right? He's this, this man that God speaks through. And God speaks to Hosea, and he says, Hosea, I want you to get married. Okay, easy enough, right? Okay, so Hosea's going to get married, but then he says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. That's a shocker, right? Here we have this godly man, and God doesn't tell him, go find a godly woman. He tells him to go marry this prostitute. And so Hosea listens, and that's what he does. He goes, he marries this sinful woman who has chosen this life of prostitution. And so he marries her. He marries, uh, he marries this woman. Her name is Gomer, and he brings her in. And, and, and as a, a godly man, we would assume that he would bring her in, and he would love her, and he would care for her, and he would protect her. And so this woman is getting this love that she doesn't deserve. But then this woman turns her back on this godly man, turns her back on this man that, that has, has treated her so well, that has loved her and cared for her, and she goes back into her sinful life. Now I'm reading that and I say, well, that's a sad story, right? Story over. You know, <laughs> that was a dumb move by her, but the story's got to be over there. But it's not. God does something even more shocking, he says, Hosea, go get her back. 
Hosea, go get her back. And that's what he does. And we see that she is being sold, right? She is being sold as a female servant. And Hosea goes to get her back. And it tells us how much he's going to pay for her. And it's like half the price of a normal female servant. Because no one wants her, right? No one even wants her anymore. She has been so, she's been through so much. No one even wants her. They can barely even give her away. But here she's being sold. And here comes Hosea and he says, I want you. I want you. And I will do whatever I need to get you back. I will pay whatever I need to pay to get you back. The reason I think that is such an amazing story is because if you are a Christian, that story of that prostitute is the story of your life. It is the story of your life. You turned your back on God. You rebelled against him. And look what he did. This is what our passage says. This is what our passage says. Verse 32. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Just like, just like Hosea, God looked at Jesus and he said, go get them back. Go get them back. And that is what Jesus did. Jesus said, I, I am willing to pay whatever I need to pay to get you back. God said, I will give even my son. Jesus said, I will even go to the cross that you deserve. I will take the wrath of God on myself. I will take your punishment to get you back. That's why it's such an amazing story because that is the story of us, right? It is the story of us Christians that God, even when we rebelled against him, was willing to send his son to get us back. He still says, I want you, and I will give up, give up whatever I need to. So God is for us, and that is amazing. It is amazing that God would be for us, but don't forget what it took for that to happen. Jesus taking the place on your cross, right? Jesus taking the place on the cross that you deserve, living the perfect life that we couldn't live, and then dying the death that we deserved. So God did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. And Jesus was willing to die in our place. And then Paul continues. He says this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's argument is this. If God is willing to give up his beloved son, then he has demonstrated that he is really for us. And if he is willing to give this big thing, then he will also give us smaller things, okay? So let me give it, let me give it to you like this. Here, here's a way to think about that. I heard one pastor uh, point out that no one understands this concept better than amusement parks, okay? So if you've been to Dollywood, there's this really frustrating thing that I think that, that happens when you pull into the parking lot. They charge you $12 for parking, right? Why does Dollywood do that? Well, in my opinion, Dollywood does that because if you are taking a family of five to Dollywood, you know that you're going to pay about $300 for them to spend the day at the park, right? So here's what Dollywood knows, that if you are willing to pay this big price of spending $300 to have your family go to Dollywood, you are not going to get in the car and turn around and go home when you see that it's $12 for parking, right? If you are willing to pay the big thing, then you're also going to pay the small thing, right? If you're going to pay $300 to get your family to go in, you're also going to pay the $12 to park. That's exactly what Paul's saying here about God. If he is willing to give up his son, if he is willing to give up this big thing, if he is willing to give up his son to die in our place, then he's not going to start nickel and diming us now. 
He is not going to start nickel and diming us now. He is not going to hold anything back. But be careful. But be careful. This is not a promise that God will give you everything you pray for. This is not a promise that he will give you health and wealth and prosperity. That's not the promise. What the promise is, is that he will not hold anything back that will make you more like Jesus. And it is a promise that if you are in Jesus, that he will get you to your ultimate destination. And that is eternity with him. It is eternity with him. And so the cross is our guarantee of hope in all situations. Because here's the thing. If God was willing to send his son, he is not going to abandon you in your time of need. If he was willing to send Jesus, if Jesus was willing to die on your behalf, he will not abandon you during your time of need. He is for us, and he has proven it without a shadow of a doubt. He is for us. Let's continue. Verses 33 and 34. It says this. It says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christian, who can bring any charge against you? No one. (laughs) Who can condemn you? No one. But that won't keep Satan from trying. (laughs) He's going to try. If you're a Christian, Satan has lost you forever, but that won't stop him from bringing every conceivable charge he can against God's elect. He will remind you of your sin. He will try to get you to question your security in Christ. There have been times in my life where I've, I've had this awful thought. Maybe you have too. I've had this awful thought where I said, God, when are you going to give up on me, right? At what point do you just say, forget it? I've given you chance after chance after chance, and now I'm done. At what point, God, do you do that? And this passage says clearly, that will never happen. That will never happen. Jesus was abandoned on the cross, so we will never be abandoned. He was abandoned on the cross, and so now we know without a shadow of a doubt that we will never be abandoned. And so, Christian, no one can bring any charge against you because no one can ever bring any charge against Jesus. If you have put your trust in him, you are united with him. You are united with him, and that union can never be severed. Jesus took our sins upon himself on the cross, and now we are clothed in his righteousness. And so we are united with him, and that means that God the Father is for each Christian to the same degree that he is for Jesus. Isn't that amazing? He loves you. You are in God's love just as deeply as Jesus is in God's love, if you are in him, if you are united with him. And that is an amazing truth. That is an amazing truth. But before we go on any farther, because I've shared a lot of promises from the Bible, A lot of of promises that are clearly stated in the Bible. But let me make something clear. These promises are exclusive. These promises are exclusively for those who are united with Christ. These promises are exclusively for Christians. The Bible says that each and every one of us will one day stand before God to be judged. And you can stand before him, and you can take all of your good deeds, and you can sit them on the table, and you can say, God... Look at everything I accomplished. Look what I did. Save me. Or maybe you'll use a different strategy. Maybe you'll say, God, 
look at all those things I could have done. Look at all those bad things I could have done, and I didn't. You look, you see my life. You know that my good far outweighs my bad. But God will have no choice but to turn away because he is a holy God without sin. He is a holy God without sin, and when he sees your sin is still present, he has to turn away. But if you are united with Christ, if you are united with Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness. So God looks at you. He sees what Jesus accomplished. He sees what Jesus accomplished. He sees Jesus' perfect life, and he declares you righteous. And he declares that you are on his side always, forevermore, for all eternity. That's the truth. And that's point one. Point two. Point two. If you are in Christ, then nothing can separate you from his love. If you are in Christ, then nothing can separate you from his love. This is what the passage says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let's see if we've caught on to the pattern here. Fellow Christians, who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Can tribulation or distress? No. Can persecution or famine or lack of money? No. How about danger or even death? No. What about the devil himself? Absolutely not. You see, it is no secret that life is hard, right? I know that there are people in this congregation, members of this church, who have had really hard years. Really hard. The 2017 was so hard. I know people in this room that I know genuinely love the Lord, and it just seems like bad experience, hard experience after hard experience. What does that mean? Does it mean that God doesn't love you? Absolutely not, right? Our passage has made this clear. It can't mean that. It can't mean that God doesn't love you. I once read this from a great theologian, R.C. Sproul, who um, just recently, a couple weeks ago, went to be with the Lord. He said this. He said, How firm our peace would be if we understood that the love from our Father is an unchangeable love. God is not some date from junior high. He doesn't write our name on his notebook only to erase it when some new love comes along. If we are his children now, if he loves us now, then we know for certain for the rest of our lives, no matter, no matter the hardship of circumstance, that we will always be his children and that he will always love us. There are times in life where it just feels like you got body slammed out of nowhere, right? And you're just laying on the ground disoriented and you don't know what happened. And as Christians, that's going to happen. We're going to get body slammed. We're going to suffer. We're going to weep. But our passage this morning reminds us that our response can always go something like this. That was horrible. That was awful. I hated that. But one thing it doesn't mean is that God doesn't love me. One thing it doesn't mean is that God doesn't love me. And one thing it doesn't mean is that he's not working for my good. And so my challenge to you in 2018 is when, when times get hard, because they will, when times get hard and you want to know if God loves you and you want to know if he has a plan for you, 
Don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at the cross. He proved his love there. He proved his love there. He proved he is for us. And so in hard times, we can keep going one foot in front of the other because we know that God is going to redeem this mess that we're in. Because he promised it and he always keeps his promises. You know, if you aren't sure that God is with you, if you aren't sure that God is for you, if you aren't sure that he loves you, then suffering's unbearable. It has to be. It's unbearable. But we never have to worry about that. We never have to worry about that. We know he loves us. We know he is for us. And so Paul says here, in this amazing part, he says, in all these things, all of our suffering, we are more than conquerors because of Jesus. More than conquerors. What does that mean? What does that mean? Let's start with the word conqueror. What do you think of? I think of like Alexander the Great, right? One of these, these historic guys you read about. And he comes in, he comes in on his horse and he's got his sword and he's just killing all his enemies. And he stands victorious and they sit there. They are lying dead on the ground at his feet. That's what I picture when I think conqueror. And we know that Jesus is a conqueror. On the sin, he conquered sin. Or on the, on the cross, he conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered all of these things that we're talking about because they are results of sin. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered our hurt. He conquered our tribulation. He conquered all of that. But the passage says that we are more than conquerors. What does that mean? What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? It means that not only are we victorious over these things because Jesus is victorious over these things, it means that our enemies, these things that are against us, they now work for us. They serve us. We not only conquered them through Jesus, they now serve us because they are always working for our good. They are always working for our good. Our trials remind us that this world, this world that we are aliens on this world, that this world in the sinful state that it's in is not our home. It reminds us not to get too comfortable. And it reminds us of God's promise that he is going to redeem this whole earth. That he will redeem this whole earth. That one day if you are united with him, that you will live with him on the new earth. You will live with him on the new earth where sin has been vanquished. You will live on the new earth where, you will, where there will be no tears. He will wipe away every tear. He will be with you. There will be no trials. There will be no tribulations. There will be no suffering. He is going to redeem this mess. And our trials, our suffering, they work for us. They work for our good. They make us more like Jesus. They make us more like Jesus when we suffer like he did. And they remind us of our ultimate destination. Heaven for eternity with God the Father and with Jesus. That's amazing, right? That is amazing. Let me close our time together this morning with a story. And since this is 2017... And since I know that there has been one theme that has kind of gone throughout the whole year, and that's been the theme of the Protestant Reformation, right? You're probably tired of hearing about it now. But I have to end with one last story for my boy Martin Luther, because I love him so much. But Martin Luther, Martin Luther, one of the great reformers of the Protestant Reformation, was a man that understood suffering. He was a man that suffered. He was a man that had an entire church out to kill him. An entire church that actually kind of acted like the government in most of Europe, it felt like. That, that church was out to kill him for much of his life. Not only that, he was often very sick. And so he would go through, he had, he had suffering throughout his life. And because of this suffering, 
he would often go into these times of great depression. But one thing about Martin Luther that's really fun to, to study is that he had an amazing wife named Katie. Katie was an awesome lady, and she knew just what to do to get Martin back thinking clearly. And so Martin one time was in one of these states where he was just really depressed, and he was moping around, and he just couldn't take it anymore. And he went out and he left the house. And Katie decided to, to change into the dress that she would often wear to funerals, this black dress that she would wear in her mourning. And so Martin comes home, and he sees his wife dressed in this black dress, and he says, who died, right? Uh, okay, add, add more suffering to me. Who died? Whose funeral are you going to? And her answer was, God. God died. And you know, Martin, being the fiery man he was, responded, no, God is not dead. God is not dead. And Katie responded, well, the way you're acting, he must be. And so Martin quickly got the point. He went in and he went to his desk and he scribbled the words on his desk that Jesus lived to always be a reminder. To remind him that no matter the suffering he's going through, that God is alive. That God is on his side. That God is for us. God is for us Christians. He is working for our good. He will never let us go. And I couldn't help but think about these words from one of my favorite hymns in Christ Alone. It says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand.